0: CHAPTER THREE, PART TWO JESS CONFESSES AND ASSISTS The next prisoner examined was Jess Albrazzo, a dark little Italian who appeared to be somewhat ignorant. In this examination, the commissioner had ample outside proof, and he also employed what he calls his psychological study. Years ago, in dealing with Negro suspects in Southern crime, Dougherty devised a little instrument which he dubbed his lie watch. This was a dial with a needle hung around the suspect's neck. If the latter told the truth, the needle presumably pointed to truth, and if he didn't, it pointed to lie. Being out of the suspect's sight, it had a strong effect. From that, Dougherty went into studies of the mental states of suspects under examination, and found rough physiological indications which he uses as a guide to the integrity of the suspect. Investigations of European criminal experts, like Professor Hans Gross, amply demonstrate that there is a real scientific basis for such methods. Doherty took it a little easier with Jess. They sat down, and the commissioner went over the Italians' movements for the past few months, showing him how thoroughly he was implicated. Jess had worked for Montani, and been intimate with the rest of the taxicab mob. He and Montani were confronted with each other, and points brought out in Kinsman's confession were skillfully used. At one point in this examination, the commissioner rose from his desk, took the lobe of Jess's ear between his thumb and finger, Pinched it slightly, looked at the ear closely, and then walked out of the room. Jess was all on edge with curiosity. "'Why did he pinch my ear?' he asked of Lieutenant Riley. "'To see if you are telling the truth,' was the answer, and in a moment the commissioner came back and examined that ear again. "'Yes, he's lying,' he declared. "'Look at his ear.' "'Can't you see it yourself?' Others were invited to look at Jess's ear, and the little Italian became so curious that he actually tried to look around the side of his skull and see his own ear. This psychological study was backed up with abundant proof that Jess had not told the whole truth. Presently he weakened and confessed." he told how he had handed $2,000 in a collar box to Jimmy the Push on the day of the robbery, which was to be taken to a Bowery bank and put in a safe deposit vault for Montani. He agreed to accompany the police to Jimmy's place in Thompson Street, and late that evening a party made up of Commissioner Doherty, Inspector Hughes, and Lieutenant Riley went there, taking Jess along. Jimmy the Push's place is one of the most picturesque thieves' resorts in lower New York. Typical of the old village, as Doherty puts it. In fact, this whole case has a strong flavor of the little old village of New York. Jimmy was out when they got there, but this saloon was in charge of the biggest, swarthiest Italian bartender in town a tough Hercules weighing somewhere around 300 pounds. The room was crowded with motley characters, drinking beverages known to the neighborhood as shocks and high-hats. For their edification, a tramp magician was taking coins out of his ears, his nose, and the air. Jess was not known to be under arrest, and immediately sent a boy called Reddy to fetch the proprietor, who had known the three police officers for years. Presently, Reddy came back and said that Jimmy would come in about a half an hour, as he was playing cards and had a fine hand. Reddy was sent back to impress upon Jimmy that Jess wanted to see him right away. It was very important. In about two minutes, just as the commissioner had bought a high hat for everybody in his party, Jimmy appeared. He was told that Jess had got into trouble in connection with the taxicab robbery, and asked about the money in the safe deposit vault. Jimmy the Push, with his partner Bob Delio, had by this time been implicated themselves, for it was clear that the money had been divided in their resort and that probably they had taken part in the planning and the decidedly one-sided division of the spoils. Jimmy was led to believe that he did not rest under suspicion, however, and that he was only asked to aid the police. He said Jess had handed him a collar-box on the day of the robbery, asking him to put it in a vault in his own name, but that he had had no idea what the box contained and had left it lying behind the bar for a couple of days before he got a chance to go to the bank with it. He readily promised to appear at headquarters the following morning, bring the key to the safe deposit box, and help recover the money. Thereupon, the police officials bade him good night and went away. But no chances were taken on Jimmy the Push. From that moment he was shadowed. That Monday was a busy day in many other ways. Developments came thick and fast. Kinsman's home in Boston was visited, and $750 of the bank money recovered in the original wrappers. It had laid in his grip, unknown to the honest Kinsman family. Swede Annie, Myrtle Horn, and a girl named Rose Levy were examined, quickly broke down, and made tearful statements to be used in evidence. These women were held only as witnesses, and as the case cleared up after a few days' detention, were released. The girl, Rose Levy, greatly attracted the commissioner. She was only nineteen years old, a mild-mannered little Jewess with jet-black hair and very remarkable eyes the commissioner went into details of her personal story. It seems that she had left her home in Brooklyn two months before, after a quarrel with her mother, and had come to New York looking for a position. But she quickly fell into the lower world, became known as Jess's girl, and was ambitious to be one of the gang. After a fatherly talk, she was persuaded to return to her home and live a decent life. But within a week, she was back in New York again, in her old haunts, trying to raise money to help Jess, for whom, she told the commissioner, she would willingly work for the rest of her days. Before visiting Jimmy's saloon, the commissioner called up the orange growers in Chicago, had a long talk with them, told what progress was being made, and put new life into them. MORE MONEY RECOVERED True to his word, Jimmy the Push walked into police headquarters at nine o'clock Tuesday morning, February twenty-seventh, closely followed by his unseen shadowers. He produced the key of the safe deposit vault and went with officers to see the money recovered. There was $2,000, as Jess had stated, still in the wrappers of the bank. JIMMY WAS STILL PERMITTED TO GO FREE, UNDER THE IMPRESSION THAT HE HAD COME THROUGH THE ORDEAL CLEAN, WHILE FRESH EVIDENCE WAS BEING OBTAINED AGAINST HIM. THAT MORNING THE COMMISSIONER ALSO TOOK KINSMAN DOWN OVER THE ROUTE OF THE ROBBERY, TO HAVE HIM EXPLAIN IT IN HIS OWN WAY. THIS WAS DONE TO STRENGTHEN THE CASE AGAINST MONTANI AND UPSET HIS STORY IN COURT. Then Scotty the Lamb was located, arrested, brought to headquarters, and led to confess. Scotty the Lamb was, in some respects, a pathetic figure in the case, and also a humorous one. He had been in charge of the lunch kitchen at the Arch Cafe when Jess owned it, and later worked as a dishwasher in a Washington Square hotel. A Scotch youth from Glasgow He had been in this country about four years, and while no criminal record appeared against him, he was plainly in the company of thieves most of the time. According to his statement, he had been promised $25 for doing some work for Jess, and without inquiring into the nature of it at all, had shown up with the gang and gone along to do his minor part of a stall, stumbling in front of the cab but before he could get out into the street the cab had been boarded so poor scotty the lamb without a nickel for car fare plodded all the way uptown again to the saloon where the money was to be divided and got nothing whatever he was a cheerful soul however and the life of the party when the gang was locked up cracking jokes and taking the view that, as sentences ought to be proportioned to the amount of money each member of the gang had got in the division, and he had got nothing, he might be let off with six months' imprisonment. "'Scotty, haven't you got any overcoat?' asked Inspector Hughes sympathetically, as they were going to court one brisk morning. "'Did you ever have an overcoat, Scotty?' "'No, sir, I never had an overcoat,' replied Scotty, and then, as he thought of his prospects for going to prison, added drolly, "'And now I don't expect, sir, that I ever will.'" THE FINE ITALIAN HAND The next step in the case was that of arresting Jimmy the Push and his partner, Bob Delio. Another phase of the robbery now began to come out plainly. Up to the present time, the main burden of proof pointed to the four hold-up men of American birth as the chief actors in the crime. Montani and Jess, the two Italians, appeared to be accessories. But as the tangled threads were unraveled one by one, it was found that the Italians involved outnumbered the American thugs. AND THAT FURTHERMORE THEY HAD OUTWITTED THEM. WHEN BOB Delio WAS ARRESTED, HE DREW $215 IN $5 BILLS OUT OF HIS POCKET AND HANDED IT TO THE POLICE, ADMITTING THAT IT WAS PART OF $5,500 OF THE STOLEN MONEY. THE REST, HE ASSERTED, HAD JUST BEEN PAID FOR RENT OF THE TWO RESORTS OPERATED BY JIMMY THE PUSH AND HIMSELF. Jimmy and Bob were taken to police headquarters and examined, with Jess present. Commissioner Doherty played one against the other so skillfully, with cross-questions and counter-pressure, that in a little while each was excitedly telling tales of his two companions, with the desperate hope of clearing himself, and denunciations flew back and forth among the trio as evidence came out that was likely to send them all to prison. Their confessions were obtained and used in a new effort to break down Montani, but this was without results. The little Italian chauffeur still stuck doggedly to his original story. From these new confessions, it appeared that the Italians had planned the crime and the American hold-up men to carry out the dirty work and laid a counterplot for holding them up in turn when the money was divided. The three brigands were ostensibly offered a chance to take part in the actual robbery, but refused on the plea that it would be too risky and that they did not believe Montani could carry it out successfully. On the morning of the crime, they walked north over the route. When they met the taxicab coming south, with a policeman on the seat beside Montani and two unconscious bank messengers inside, they knew that the project had succeeded. So the three brigands hurried uptown to Jimmy the Push's saloon. They got there so quickly that they were ahead of the robbers. Jess made a rehearsed protest when they insisted in sharing in the plunder, but the three brigands drew revolvers threatened to make a disturbance that would bring in the police, and finally help themselves to $10,000. When the thugs who had done the actual work left the saloon, they had only $8,000 all told. The Italians, who had played safe at every point, had $17,000. One of the brigands comes in. The actual whereabouts of the three brigands was not known to the police then, but there were certain channels through which news might reach at least one of them. Word was sent through those channels, therefore, that it might be best for them to appear and give an account of themselves, and on Friday, March 1st, just at the time Splane had been brought back from Memphis, the little leader of the brigands, Mateo Arbrano, an undersized Italian wearing spectacles, who had carried out the job of robbing the hold-up men, surrendered himself to the district attorney. Arbrano said that he had divided his $10,000 with his two companions, Gonzales and Cavaquero, and immediately left New York, taking a steamer from Mexico by way of Havana. At the latter city he stopped overnight, Met a woman and accompanied her to a resort, was drugged and robbed of two thousand seven hundred dollars, and woke on the Prado with only a hundred dollars left, a single bill that had been concealed in his shoe. With that, he returned to New York. The story is regarded by the police as more picturesque than convincing. It is probable that Mateo's share of the plunder with that of other Italians involved, has been carefully planted. Pauly Gonzalez, another of the brigands, was traced to Veracruz, Mexico. In the present state of that country, however, it was found impossible to arrest and extradite him upon the evidence at hand. Three other persons concerned in the robbery are still at large at this writing. Dutch Keller, Joe the Kid, and an unknown whose identity is concealed for police reasons. Montani pleaded not guilty and stood trial. After two days, exactly a month and a day subsequent to the robbery, he was convicted by a jury and sentenced to not less than ten years and not more than eighteen years and two months in prison with hard labor. A word must be said about the prompt action of the district attorney's office in the taxicab case. Where crime has had such publicity, there is an opportunity to make a demonstration of great value by pressing the prosecutions. It was not lost. Under assistant Charles C. Knott, Jr., evidence was succinctly laid before judges and juries. The trials finished in a matter of hours and convictions and sentences secured within six weeks after the robbery. Furthermore, the various sentences were just, being carefully graded according to the part played by each offender, his character and previous record, and his individual effort in facilitating justice. Gino Montani, arrested February twenty sixth, 1912, Pleaded February twenty ninth nineteen twelve. Sentenced March sixteenth nineteen twelve. Sentence not less than ten years nor more than eighteen years two months. Judge Seabury Edward Kinsman. Arrested February twenty sixth nineteen twelve. Pleaded March first nineteen twelve. Sentenced April ninth nineteen twelve. Sentence not less than three years nor more than six years. Judge Crane Eugene Splane arrested march second nineteen twelve pleaded march fourth nineteen twelve sentenced march twenty fifth nineteen twelve. Sentence not less than seven years six months nor more than fourteen years six months. Judge Seabury. Robert Delio arrested February twenty eighth nineteen twelve pleaded March fourth nineteen twelve sentenced March twenty ninth nineteen twelve sentence not less than two years six months nor more than four years two months judge Seabury James Pasquale or Jimmy the Push ARRESTED FEBRUARY 28, 1912 PLEADED MARCH 4, 1912 SENTENCED APRIL 8, 1912 SENTENCE SIX-MONTH PENITENTIARY JUDGE DAVIS JOSEPH LAMB OR SCOTTY THE LAMB ARRESTED FEBRUARY 27, 1912 PLEADED MARCH 18, 1912 sentenced march twenty ninth nineteen twelve sentence intermediate sentence elmira judge seabury matteo arbrano arrested march second nineteen twelve pleaded april third nineteen twelve sentence two to four years judge davis jess albrazo arrested march twenty sixth nineteen twelve pleaded march eighteenth nineteen twelve sentence three to six years judge davis end of section nine